Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And again, if you're visiting with us today, uh, you're in week two of a series that we're doing over the course of the summer called The Air We Breathe. And in this series, what we're doing as a congregation is we're identifying some of the uh, subtle yet sinful patterns of thinking that can creep into our minds and into our congregations. Because whether we like it or not, each and every one of us spends a lot of time in the world. We spend a lot of time being influenced by the world, and that inevitably shapes our thinking. Now, you might think, well, hey, easy solution. Let's just get out of the world. You know, like, that's, let's go get a commune. Let's go live together away from society. And, and perhaps that seems like an easy solution. Uh, but we can't go there because Jesus, when he prayed for us in his great high priestly prayer, he prayed to the Father specifically, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Right, so as Jesus prayed for us, he said, don't do that. Don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, Jesus taught us to be salt and light and a, a city on a hill, which means that we need to be in the world. That's where we're called to be. So he didn't pray that we would be removed from it. He prayed instead that we would be preserved while we live in and amongst it. And how does he keep us? How does he preserve us? Well, a few verses later, he says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus says, as my people are living in the world, what they need, Father, from you is that you would sanctify them, that you would save them and and make them holy with your truth. And your word is the truth. Which is what we saw last Sunday in in Romans chapter uh, 12, right? Verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So if we want to live rightly in the world, what we need is for the word of God to wash over us with the help of the Spirit to shape us and to help us to think the way we should. And so over the course of this series, that's what we're after, right thinking as we live in this world. And so we're identifying little subtle targets where, where maybe some wrong thinking has crept in. And today our target is the sin of tribalism. Tribalism. If, if you're not familiar with that word, just think of it's this us and them mentality that is so prevalent in our world today. It fuels so much of the vitriol and the rage that we see. It's most evident in politics. Of course, you see this in politics, right? It's a... Uh, It's not about the issues anymore. It's about identity. We don't talk to each other anymore. We talk at each other. It's all about who are you? Are you you conservative or are you liberal? Or or are you Republican or are you Democratic? Are you us or are you them, right? That shapes our political world. We see it in social media. Uh, We see a lot of it in social media, don't we? Right, where we're, we forget that we're talking to people and instead we're combating with our opponents. And so you're no longer my friend Bobby from high school, now you're an anti-vaxxer, right? Or you're no longer my old co-worker Steve, now you're a socialist. And we slap labels on one another and then we fight with each other and that's tribalism. And it's the air we breathe, it's, it's all around us. Well, in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 3, I hope you've turned there. In our passage this morning, we see that this sin of tribalism existed long before Canadian politics or social media. We see that this sin of tribalism, way back in in Paul's day, was capable of creeping into a church and wreaking havoc. And so we're going to read this text, we're going to learn from this example. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. 
1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in our passage this morning, we catch a glimpse of what happens when tribalism makes its way into the church. The Corinthians had divided into camps. You see that in verse 4. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And, and that mindset, that us and them rivalry competitive mentality can creep into our own congregations if we're not careful. So this morning, intentionally, I wanted to announce and celebrate the Cornerstone VBS where they had 147 kids and saw 12 professions of faith. And of course, our response was joy, right? We clapped, we were excited, and that's as we should. That is the right response. But now, just let me ask a probing question. Don't raise your hand. I wonder how many of us maybe started thinking, well, why on earth are we announcing the Cornerstone VBS? We're not Cornerstone. It's not our camp. Or how many of us in that deep, dark, gross corner of our hearts started to compare and started to feel a little bit, a little bit of a rivalry with, you know, how many kids made professions of faith at our camp compared to theirs? How, many, how much of us had a bit of insecurity bubbling up in ourselves? Well, that, that thing lurking underneath the surface, that is the sin of, of tribalism. And if we allow that to grow and to make its way further into our hearts and further into our congregations, then really gross things can happen in the church. So what happens when tribalism creeps into the church? We see it here in this text. I want to draw your attention to three things. First, when tribalism creeps into the church, our spiritual immaturity is exposed for all to see. So look at verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So here Paul is referring to his, his previous time with the Corinthians, and it was when they were still young as believers. So in the Denbach home, for example, uh, Noel is currently getting started with the ABCs. That's where we're at. And uh, we're not surprised when she misses, mixes, mixes up, see, we have problems too. When she mixes up the S and the X, as she's singing through, we're not surprised when Elementopy becomes like one big letter. That's par for the course, right? That's where she's at. That's appropriate. We all begin somewhere. And Paul writes to these Corinthian Christians and he says, you know, you began somewhere. There was a time when you were spiritual babies. I was with you and you were infants in Christ. You were, you were learning your spiritual ABCs. And to be fair, that's, that was appropriate at the time. There are some people here today who are learning your spiritual ABCs. You're brand new Christians. And that's, that's appropriate. We all start there. But here Paul, 
he's writing to a people who, uh, who really should have grown. Like, Noelle eventually needs to wrap her mind around the ABCs, and she needs to move on to other things. Growth is right. Growth is expected. But growth wasn't happening in this Corinthian church. Looking at the end of verse 2, he says, And even now, meaning that's who you were, but even now, you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. Well, how does he know that? Where, where does he see that immaturity? For, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? See, they failed to graduate out of that spiritual infancy. He was with this church previously five years ago. So if you want to put some context to it, five years ago, he says, I was with you and it, you were drinking milk and I, I had different expectations for you because you were spiritual infants in Christ five years ago. But that was five years ago. He says, and even now, nothing's changed to his dismay. There's, they're just as immature as when he had left. And this immaturity was on full display in their tribalism, in their competitive spirit, in their us and them uh, battling together, in their divisions and quarreling and strife. And Paul says, how could this be? You're jealous? You're fighting amongst yourselves about whose pastor is more impressive? Are you kidding? Guys, you look and sound just like the world. See, when we start fighting and we start dividing over these things, people notice. That's, that's one of the dangers of when this creeps into the church. It's not just like a little secret thing. It's, it becomes evident. It's visible. Paul is writing them. He says, I see this. He got a report from Chloe's household, he says at the beginning of chapter 1. He says, people came up from Chloe's household and they said, you wouldn't believe what the church is doing. It's embarrassing. And, and in the same way, people see it when it happens in us. Our city sees it. Our neighbors see it. Our children see it when we quarrel and fight and divide over petty things. When tribalism creeps into the church, our spiritual immaturity is exposed for all to see. And that robs God of glory. It's the first lesson we learn from this example. Second, when tribalism creeps into the church, human leaders are given far too much credit. That also robs God of glory. We see it in verses 5 to 7. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. So I planted, and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See, these, these Corinthians have become far too attached to their human leaders, and so whether it was Paul or Apollos, or in chapter 1 he mentions some of them are following Cephas, which is Peter, he says, the whole thing is, is ridiculous, which is why in chapter 1 he asks them with some hyper. he says, was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? By the way, the answer is no. No, of course not. He says, are you kidding me? I'm just the messenger. I'm a, I'm a servant through whom you believed, is the language that he uses. And so is Apollos, and so is Peter. Why are you fighting over allegiances to us when all of us are pointing to him. He says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. God did this, not me. God builds the church, not Paul, not Apollos, not Pastor Levi, not Pastor David Emmanuel, and not Pastor Paul at Cornerstone, and not Pastor John MacArthur, and not Pastor John Piper. God is building his church, and we're all simply his servants, which is why he goes on to say, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. 
but only God who gives the growth. Now, I want to be careful here that we don't overhear that, because obviously Paul's using hyperbole. The takeaway from what he's saying is not, so throw away Christian leaders. Who needs them? Phooey. That's not what he's saying. Because when he writes to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, he describes spiritual leaders as a gift from God to the church. They were given to the church to equip the church for the work of ministry. So he's not saying, you know, get rid of leaders and despise leaders. They're not literally nothing, as what he says here. But what he is saying is that we need to stop giving credit to men for things that only God can do. And he is saying we need to stop giving the kind of allegiance to men that only God deserves. Right? Don't give the credit to men that, for things only God can do. Don't give allegiance to men for things that only God deserves. One commentator explains, ministers do have value, but when respect or fondness leads to an exclusive loyalty... And when this causes division or detracts from a a proper theocentric, that's God-centered, or Christocentric, that's Jesus-centered, orientation, Paul wishes to point out that only God who makes things grow is worthy of our undivided gratitude and adoration. And it feels super awkward to say this, but given, given that this passage is before us, I just have to go ahead and say it. So please don't ever build unhealthy attachments to me. Please don't ever believe the lie that this church needs me. Please don't ever say, I go to Levi's church. No, you don't. You go to Jesus' church. And, and I am so wonderfully replaceable, just like every other pastor in this city and in the world. Just like Paul and Apollos, I say with them that we are servants through whom you believed. Nothing more, nothing less. Tribalism lose sight of that. Tribalism gives far too much credit to human leaders. And third and finally, when tribalism creeps into the church, Christian unity is obscured and opposed. I wanted to be careful with the language here. Uh, I used that word obscured on purpose because the reality is our unity as the capital C church, as the church in the world, we are united whether we like it or not. Jesus is the head and we are united under him. So I say that tribalism obscures that reality. Tribalism pretends that there's this us and them dynamic. But when we get in heaven, it's going to be really embarrassing when we see, wait a second, we're on the same team, right? It obscures a reality that is there. Paul reminds us in verses 8 to 9, he who plants and he who waters are one. They are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So Paul's reminding us here that, and I want to be careful, no matter which legitimately Christian leader, pause, I'm not suggesting that there are no wolves in the world. There are, unfortunately. I'm not suggesting that there there are no churches or denominations that have have lost the gospel and are far from the truth. Unfortunately, there are. But all legitimately Christian leaders and legitimately Christian denominations are on the same team. They're on the same team. We're one. And not only were these Corinthians being immature and worldly, not only were they giving far too much credit to their human leaders, but in doing all of this, they were actually dividing and therefore damaging the church that that Jesus died to build and the church that their beloved leaders had been assigned to build. Because that's what tribalism does. It opposes the bride of Christ. Now, this raises some questions. So let me just 
Maybe bring one out. I suspect there's somebody in the room who's probably asking, if I were here, the teenage version of me, I would be asking right now, well, then why do we have so many churches in this city, huh? If this is true, then shouldn't we just take all of those different churches and shouldn't we bring them together in one massive thing under one massive roof and just worship the Lord together? Isn't that what we ought to do? Hey, it's a good question, teenage version of me. And I'll give a, a brief answer here because that's all time allows for. But if, if you want to process further, I'd love to buy you a coffee. We can talk more. But later on in this letter, Paul talks about the church, and he uses language that maybe helps us to think through that question. He talks about how the church is like a body, like the human body, and he talks about how you've got all these different members, and they're all very different. They do different things, Paul says. And after highlighting all of those differences, he explains, and as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So he says, yes, of course there are differences, but those differences don't destroy the unity of the church. That, that's not an argument for, for a lack of unity. Actually, those differences should, in theory, make our unity more beautiful, more compelling to the watching world. Those differences are helpful. They're helpful for utility. We're able to do things now in the world that we wouldn't be able to do if we were all the same. The church is diverse, but that, that doesn't mean we're broken. So, follow-up question, then why do you have all these different denominations? Well, because we see through a glass dimly in this broken world. Until Christ returns, we, we're doing the best we can with his word in front of us, but we don't all see exactly the same thing. We have some minor differences. And God in his word tells us that we need to follow our conscience. Romans 14, for example, talks about that. Colossians 2 talks about that. So as we see things in the text, we need to follow our conscience as to what we see. But we have some little disagreements about things like baptism about things like the church governance, uh, about things like the, the use of spiritual gifts in the church. And those differences don't, don't destroy our unity, but they are, they're not nothing. And we need to gather together with like-minded believers so that we can worship God according to what we see in the text. Okay, that's, that's what denominations are, if you're wondering. That we're just worshiping the Lord according to what we see in the text. And the existence of, domination, of denominations doesn't mean that we're tribalistic. It just means that we're, we're honoring the Lord according to what we see. Well, then when does it become tribalism? It becomes tribalism when, when one congregation believes the lie that they have a monopoly on the truth. It becomes tribalism when we become so reverently devoted to our theological camp that we obscure our unity in Christ. When we hold our, our little label here on par with our walk with Christ. Put it this way. Listen, before you are reformed, before you are complementarian, before you are baptistic, before you are Calvinistic, you're a Christian. And that means that you're not so reformed, egalitarian, Pentecostal, Arminian brother or sister is a Christian too. As Matthew Henry writes, all the faithful ministers of Christ are one in the great business and intention of their ministry. They may have differences of sentiment in minor things. They may have their debates and contests, but they, are, but they heartily concur in the great design of honoring God and saving souls by promoting true Christian unity in the world. Yes and amen. And when tribalism creeps into the church, we obscure and oppose all of that. So let's not allow that to happen. Competition and rivalry and us and them thinking permeates every part of our lives out there, but it has no place in the church here. It has no place in the household of God. But what then can we do? 
As we come to a close, I feel like it's a fair question. What do we do? If that is the air we breathe, if that, has, if that is shaping our thinking more than we even realize, then how do we put safeguards in place to, to guard our church against the sin of tribalism? Let me put forward three suggestions as we conclude. Two of them come straight from our text, and the third comes from a, a letter that Paul wrote to a church elsewhere. First, in light of what we read in our passage for this morning, we can safeguard our church against this sin of tribalism by settling for nothing less than servant leadership. We do leadership differently in the church, or at least we're supposed to. If you look at verse 5, Paul writes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, he answers that question, doesn't he? Servants through whom you believe. That's what. What are your Christian leaders? They are servants. Servant leadership is what we, are, what we see in Scripture. It's what should be modeled in the church. And Paul didn't make this up. Paul was reiterating what Jesus taught us and displayed for us in his life. In Mark 10, for example, Jesus said to his disciples, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Christian leaders are servants, and all of our leadership needs to be modeled by what we see at the cross as we see our King and our Savior suffering in service for his people. Now, what happens when Christian leaders lose sight of that and abandon that example? What happens when we settle for leaders that look more like the the world's example than the example we see at the cross? Well, sadly, we don't have to look too far. Most evidently, you see it on TV. I mean, there's so many uh, of these scandal exposés out right now about these, you know, maybe the prosperity gospel preachers with the big multi-million dollar mansions and the private jets. We look at that and we say, well, that's definitely not the way that it ought to be. But I would maybe zoom in and say, we also see it in small towns, even like this one. We're in little churches, even like this one. Sometimes pastors can allow their congregations to believe the lie that that you need me, that I'm irreplaceable. That, that's, when we lose sight of it, that happens too. It's not just on the grand scale. We see it on the internet, right? When we find these leaders who, who, who give their whole lives to making you angry and convincing you that they're the only one who has all the answers. That's the same thing. That's not the leadership that Jesus modeled. D.A. Carson warns, leaders should refrain from presenting themselves as if they have the corner on the truth, or all the gifts, or exclusive authority, or insight. He says that if you find a leader that, that it's presenting themselves that way, then you need, to, you need to not settle for that, right? You need to get them out of there. And by the way, if that leader is ever me, get me out of here too. Or our elders, get, get us out of here. That we need to lead the way that Jesus set in his example, So don't settle for leaders who are looking for earthly praise and prominence. Don't settle for leaders who are fixated on power or platform. Don't settle for leaders who take the credit for victories that God has won. Don't settle for anything less than leaders who can say along with Paul, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's the first safeguard we can put in place. Second, if we want to safeguard the church against the sin of tribalism 
then we need to set a gospel high bar for division. And I'm going to explain that because at the preaching workshop they said, what are you saying? I'll explain. Set a gospel high bar for division. So listen, I don't want you to walk away today thinking that I'm saying that there's never a right reason to divide. There are right reasons to divide. Okay, loud and clear. There are right reasons to divide. Some, some churches aren't really part of the household of God. They have strayed so far from the gospel, they're not true churches. And some Christians aren't really Christians, right? Because they have rejected the gospel and are living their own way. And you'd say, well, that doesn't sound like what Paul's saying here. Well, if you flip ahead a few pages, it's exactly what Paul says here. Because in chapter 5, and go ahead and look there, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, he writes to these same Christians, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So apparently in this Corinthian church, there was a member of the church who was in an intimate relationship with his dad's wife. It probably wasn't his mom. It's probably a new marriage. Either way, Paul says, are you crazy? Like even, even the pagan world around you is looking at that and saying, that is wrong. He says, and yet you guys are tolerating it. And so Paul, where just a few verses ago, he was commanding this church to, to stop being so divisive and to, and to find their unity. Here he's rebuking them because he's saying, hey, there's a right time to divide, you know. You need to draw the line and you need to do what's right. So holding that tension is the challenge. It's why this is so nuanced and complicated. But what we learn here is that uh, we need to have a gospel high bar. So here he says you need to have unity. You're fighting about your different leaders? No. God calls for unity. Over here he says there needs to be some division because the gospel's at stake. You're obscuring our witness to the world. So let's raise up that bar for division Let's stop dividing over here over the silly stuff, but let's divide over here over the gospel stuff. Have a gospel high bar for division. Does that make sense? Now, tribalism, on the contrary, always wants to lower the bar. Tribalism is always ready to divide over the minutia. It has us looking with suspicion at those Pentecostals, wondering whether they're saved at all. It has us wringing our hands, looking at the church down the road, calling them apostate because they have a female minister It has us uh, narrowing the boundaries of Christendom in such a way that everyone else is out unless they think exactly like Redeemer City Church. Brothers and sisters, if we want to safeguard our hearts against tribalism, we need to raise the bar for division to the appropriate height. Listen, if a church is encouraging their people to continue in sin, then they are outside. They are not us. That's a gospel high bar, right? If a church is denying the divinity of Christ or the doctrine of the Trinity... They are outside. That doesn't hit the bar. If a church is teaching that there is any other way to God other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they are outside. If a church is denying the authority and sufficient of the word of God, they are outside. Those are appropriate gospel high bars for division. Those churches are not us. And it's not tribalism for us to say that. But under that bar... Boy, there's a lot of room for us to pray with and for those Anglicans and to partake in a joint worship service with those Presbyterians and to fund a local benevolence program with those Pentecostals and those Lutherans. There is one church and Redeemer is simply one distinct expression of what God is doing in this city and in this world. 
And that leads to our third and final point. If we want to safeguard our church against this subtle sin of tribalism, then we need to learn to celebrate every gospel victory. Celebrate every victory. As we do that, it's going to change our hearts. Sometimes, sometimes we can become so insulated, such a silo, that our hearts become that way without even thinking. We just, of course we look with suspicion at the rest of them because we've spent our whole life pretending that they don't exist. Right? We need to learn how to celebrate these things. And Paul set a great example in this. Later in his life while he was in prison, he received a report in prison about teachers who were going out and preaching Jesus. And these are guys who had been kind of slamming Paul and undermining Paul. And now they're, they're amassing followers. And so, of course, people who were loyal to Paul were like, look at, look at these, these rascals. have got all these followers, Paul. What do you think? Here's what he said. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What do I do then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In that, I rejoice. So Paul says, yeah, you know what, you're right. There's people out there and they're, they're proclaiming Christ. Some of them are doing it for the right reasons. Some of them most certainly are doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, but they're all proclaiming Christ. And I'll tell you what, as I think about that, I can rejoice in that. See, Paul understood that he can't see the heart. He can't discern the motives. He can't draw the line between the right motive folks and the wrong motive folks. But Paul knows that all of that's going to come out in the wash anyways. Like one day we're going to stand before the king. I mean, he says that later in his letter to the Corinthians. Like watch what you're building on with this foundation because eventually the fire is going to come and it's all going to be exposed. So Paul says, I, I can't discern the motives of these folks and inevitably some of them are doing it for all the wrong reasons. But Christ is being proclaimed and I can see that and tell you what, I'll rejoice in that while I sit here in my chains. That should be, a, that should be our disposition. You know, I think of 1 Corinthians 13. He talks about love. He's talking about you've got all these gifts, you've got all wisdom, all knowledge, but you don't have love. It's like clanging gongs. It's, it's, it's just noise. It's racket. It's not, it's not what God desires. But he says when you have love, it all comes together. And one of the ways he describes that love is he says that love believes all things, hopes all things. Meaning if, if we want to, do I have love for the churches in our city? Do I have love for these other groups? Here's a question. When I look at them and I look at what, what they are doing in, around the city, Am I believing all things, hoping all things? Am I assuming good motives in them? Or am I always looking with suspicion, thinking, what is he up to now? What are they doing now? What, what's, what's their prerogative behind this? Just, Paul wasn't like that. And we ought not to be like that. So if I could return to our opening illustration, I mentioned that 12 kids surrendered their lives to Jesus at Cornerstone this week. It's good and fitting for us as a church to celebrate that. Right? We ought to celebrate those things. I had a, a week off a couple months ago, and on that week off, I chose to go to Conexus Aurelia. I've never been there uh, to worship with them. They did things very differently than what we would do. I didn't come away saying, I want to change what we do to do it like them. Uh, there was a lot of differences, but I'll tell you, two women went through the waters of baptism that day, and praise God for that. Two lives transformed following Jesus. On another one of my weeks off, I went to Emmanuel Aurelia here in town, and I was there. They were giving a report about uh, Serve the City, I think it was called, Love the City, and they talked about how they were going out and reaching their neighbors and, and serving them in Jesus' name, and praise God for that. 
And Cornerstone planted that site in cold water and they averaged 60 attendees last month. Praise God for that. Praise God for what he's doing in, in Aurelia Christian Church. Praise God for what he's doing at the Aurelia Alliance. I, I got to have a bonfire last night with Pastor Graham from the Alliance Church. And he was just sharing all the little, all the little sweet victories. Like, praise God for those things. And for what he's doing at Simcoe Side next door. And for what he's doing at Calvary Pentecostal and Hillside Bible Chapel. And Jubilee Celebration Center. And Covenant Reformed Church. And the Aurelia Gospel Hall. And all these churches in town that are, are faithfully preaching the gospel. Listen, we got some differences with the churches on those lists, don't we? We do things differently, and, and we, shouldn't, we don't make light of those differences. They're real. In fact, we disagree with a number of them over some significant theological issues, and they disagree with us. Newsflash, right? It goes both ways. I'm not suggesting that we need to pretend that those differences don't exist, and I wouldn't suggest that's what Paul's saying in this passage. But what I am suggesting is that we need to recognize them as our brothers and our sisters in Christ And we need to learn how to celebrate the gospel victories that God is working in and through them. Because one day in glory, we're going to be up there and we're going to be reaping the benefit of all of those gospel victories. We're going to be worshiping forever with brothers and sisters that were led to the Lord through those other congregations. I pray that the us and them thinking, that tribalism that we're so steeped in in our culture, I pray that it would have no place here in this congregation. And I can pray for that with confidence because Jesus prayed for it too. We began in the high priestly prayer, John 17, and it seems a fitting place to return as we close. As Jesus prayed for us to the Father, he asked for us that they, it's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's powerful, right? Jesus Think about what he asked for. He says that, that the church would be marked by the kind of unity that exists here in this trinity. That that, that would be what the world sees in the church. And why, why do they need that unity? Why, why should we have that inside of us? So that, he says, so that the world may believe. See, our unity is actually directly tied to our mission. Our unity is tied to our mandate. And when we lose sight of that and when we obscure our unity... And when we adopt that us and them posture, we actually spoil our witness and we've seen it played out again and again and again in this city and in this world. Tribalism has no place in the church that Jesus prayed for. It has no place in the church that Jesus bled for. It has no place in the church that Jesus died for. It has no place in the church that he rose again for. So let's join him in this prayer and let's ask him now to guard our hearts as a people, as a congregation, as a city, against this sin, that he would keep it outside of these doors. Would you bow your heads with me now? Heavenly Father, we love you. You are so good, so kind, so merciful, so holy, so worthy of our praise. We love you. And I thank you for your word. I thank you that as we return to it again and again and again, uh, you, you always speak. God, we hold to the promises that your word goes forth and it never returns void. Or you said the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord, we delight in those promises and we are holding on to them today. God, I pray that your word would wash over us and dislodge error that has crept into our thinking. 
Lord, that it would dislodge prejudice that has found its way into our heart. Lord, dispositions of suspicion that, that don't belong there, that are there because of our time in the world, not because of our time in your word. Lord, we thank you for leaders. I thank you that you have given each of us, Lord, spiritual leaders who have equipped us in the faith, Lord, for the work that you've called us to. They are a gift from you, and we don't despise those gifts. But Lord, I pray that you would help us not to swear loyalty or allegiance to any earthly leader over and above you. I pray that you would help us never to, never to put our leader up in the place of God and to assume that when he speaks or when she speaks, God speaks. Lord, I pray that we'd be wise and discerning. Lord, and, and in the same way, I pray that in our, our zeal for unity, which, which I see in this prayer, Lord Jesus, is something we should be after. But I pray, Lord, that as we pursue unity, that we would never do it in such a way that we obscure the gospel which unites us. Lord, so I do pray that you would help us to be discerning when there are errors that, are, that really do rise up to that gospel high bar. I pray that you would help us to be a people who, like the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, have the hard talk with a wayward person who, who has lost sight of the gospel. Lord, that we would even have hard talks with, with congregations that have, have strained from the path. But Lord, as we keep that discernment in mind, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be guided by that principle of love that believes all things and hopes all things. And Lord, I pray that our great ambition, Lord, would not to be to make our tribe more powerful, uh, Lord, to have more control in our hands, but Lord, our great ambition would be that Jesus is proclaimed and made famous in this city and in this world. Lord, that the lost all around us, Lord, that they live under the the ringing sound of the gospel being proclaimed. Lord, so help these churches that I, I listed just moments ago. Lord, I thank you for the word that's been preached across this city, not just in this room. And Lord, I hold to all the promises that we mentioned a moment ago. I hold to those promises for those congregations as well. Lord, let it go forth. Let it not return void. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd launch us out from this congregation and all of the others, Lord, that you would launch us out into this city, Lord, united in the mission of of telling lost men and women that there is a God who has sent his son, that we could be saved from our sin. Lord, I pray that we would point to the good news of what God has done in Jesus to secure our salvation. So, Lord, we love you. And Lord, and I, as I pray all of these things, Lord, I, my, my heart goes back to little Kezia. Lord, we pray for this, this sweet girl, Lord, who has come into this family of faith. And Lord, I pray that as she looks at us and all of our little ones look at us, Lord, that they wouldn't see that immaturity that so many have seen in the past, Lord, but that they would see mature brothers and sisters in the faith, setting a good example and leading like Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?